Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is producing from afar. Clark Hilton is engineering. Today on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Steve Van Horn. He is the president and founder of International Training and Equipping Ministries. He's been a guest on this program many times, but it's been far too long. We're going to catch up with this ministry that helps to train and equip pastors and leaders in African nations. Really looking forward to uh, that conversation. And in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Matt Tallman. He serves with Open Arms International, wearing many hats there, including leading short-term missions teams to the Open Arms Village in Kenya. We're going to talk about the upcoming short-term mission connection that's coming up Friday evening and all day Saturday, February 22nd and 23rd at Eastridge Church in Clackamas. You can uh, look up the details and register at missionconnection.com. Look for short-term mission connection 2019 and all the uh, important details are there. First, taking a look at some of the developing news stories of the day. The president has signaled support for the border security deal after meeting with Senator Shelby, although that has waxed and waned of late. The president appeared to be moving uh, Tuesday toward approving a border security compromise after speaking with the top Republican on the Senate Appropriations Committee. However, the committee itself and the language of the thing that isn't yet complete Uh, may make the difference. The president tweeted that he had been presented the concept and parameters of the agreement by hardworking Senator Richard Shelby, a Republican out of Alabama. Well, during a cabinet meeting earlier uh, yesterday, the president said that he was not happy with the tentative deal, but uh, did not say whether he would enact the measure and insisted that the administration was using methods to construct his long-promised wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. In fact, members of the U.S. Senate are actually talking about seizing um, some of the billions of dollars from El Chapo, who was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole to pay for that wall. Well, the president also wants to avert another government shutdown, despite expressing displeasure at what uh, was agreed to by lawmakers on Monday night. A committee negotiating new border security measures tentatively agreed to dedicate $1.4 billion to the president's border wall, among other things, far less than his $5.7 billion goal. The emerging deal drops Democratic demands to seriously limit detentions of immigrants illegally in the United States. The president thanked MSNBC after a report that the Senate panel found no evidence of Russia collusion was announced. The president expressed gratitude to MSNBC, something you're not going to probably see again and haven't up to this point. For its report Tuesday morning that, according to unnamed sources, the Senate Intelligence Committee concluded that there is no direct evidence of a conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russia during the 2016 election. The committee conducted 200 interviews over the course of two years, and this was a bipartisan Uh, committee. Meanwhile, Chelsea Clinton defends uh, has been defending Representative Omar, saying that the president never said sorry for white nationalism's embrace. Well, Chelsea on Tuesday called out the vice president, Mike Pence, for saying that Representative Omar's apology for earlier Twitter posts called anti-Semitic was inadequate and blasted President Trump for peddling the same. Clinton, not anti-Semitic, but she referred to it as hate. Uh, Clinton, um, who was critical of Omar's tweets, posting that we should expect all elected officials, regardless of party and all public figures, to not traffic in anti-Semitism, but said on Tuesday that Trump is a far more powerful person and has never apologized for his embrace of white nationalism and anti-Semitic and Islamic fo- Islamophobic hate, end quote. She didn't cite specific examples. Omar said she had not had no intention, rather, of offending anyone, including Jewish Americans, when she 
um, insinuated that lobbyists were paying lawmakers to support Israel. The president called for her apology lame and said she should resign from Congress or at least not be allowed to serve on committees. He's referring, of course, to what happened to a member of the Republican Party who made uh, racist comments and was stripped of all his committee assignments uh, just uh, about a month ago. A wire fox terrier from Brazil named King was announced Tuesday as the winner of the 143rd Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show at Madison Square Garden in New York City. Wire fox terriers have won 15 times at the nation's most prestigious dog show. That that would be a picture of me for me of what hell would be like a room full of dogs just running. Anyway, <clears throat> Anyway, there were some boos along with modest cheers when Judge Peter Green pointed to the seven-year-old king. Bono, the Havanese, came in second among the more than 2,800 dogs that competed. 2,800 dogs all in one place. I think my heart might be palpitating. Contenders in the final ring were Bean, a popular Sussex Spaniel that has won the sporting uh, group two years in a row. Burns, a crowd-pleasing long-haired Dashund. Wilmer, or rather Wilma, a boxer. And Baby Lars, a... Some other dog whose name is way too big for a dog. There's no prize money for the win, just a shiny silver bowl. Other um, uh, rewards come in the form of lucrative breeding rights and a lifetime, lifetime of bragging rights, which, of course, the dogs don't engage in themselves. Uh, the nation's debt surpassed $22 trillion for the first time on Tuesday, a milestone that Experts warn as further proof the country is on an unsustainable financial path that could jeopardize the economic security of every American. USA Today is reporting the piece editorialized that the nation's uh, debt has been rising at a fast rate following the passage of President Trump's one point five trillion dollar tax cut package. But runaway entitlement and welfare programs are and uh, will continue to be the primary driver of debt, which unfortunately neither party will address. Eric Erickson rightly says more so than climate change, the national debt is a national security issue. Bipartisanship and conservatism are good, but when it's in a Uh, When is enough federal land enough? Well, the Senate on Tuesday passed the most sweeping conservation legislation in a decade, protecting millions of acres of land and hundreds of miles of wild rivers across the country and establishing four new national monuments honoring heroes, including Civil War soldiers and a civil rights icon. The 662 page measure, which passed 92 to 8, represented an old fashioned approach to deal making that has largely disappeared on Capitol Hill. Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced that the Senate will vote on the Green New Deal resolution, National Review reports. I've noted with great interest the Green New Deal, he said, and we're going to be voting on that in the Senate. Give everybody an opportunity to go on record and see how they feel about the Green New Deal. More importantly, uh, that their constituents will have an opportunity to see where they stand, McConnell said with a sly smile during a Tuesday press conference. Ironically, is uh, its sponsors fiercely object, which is rather... Well, ironic. According to CBS Miami, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo blamed budget shortfalls on the state of Florida. He said New Yorkers are fleeing to the Sunshine State to save big time on taxes. Census Bureau data affirms this. America's um, Legislative Exchange Council chief economist Jonathan Williams, in a piece titled Americans Continue Their March to Low-Tax States, says Idaho, Nevada, Utah, and Arizona led the way this past year in overall population growth as a percentage of population. 
once again, Texas and Florida were the big winners in overall population gains, with the Lone Star State gaining more than 390 excuse me, 379,000 residents from 2017 to 2018, and the Sunshine State posting a gain of more than 322,000. The big net losers from the report were New York, which lost a total of 48,510 residents, and Illinois, 45,116. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Reminder, Steve Van Horn will join me. He's president and founder of International Training and Equipping Ministries, an outreach to uh, about a dozen African nations. We'll tell you more about that when he joins me in studio. Uh, Still winding uh, my way through some of the news stories of the day, Um, following 35 hours of deliberations by a Brooklyn federal judge, former drug lord Joaquim El Chapo Guzman now faces life in a maximum security federal prison. The New York Post reports El Chapo uh, was a serial prison escapee in Mexico who raked in billions of dollars via drug trafficking. Senator Ted Cruz recommends funneling that money toward a border wall. We'll see what happens there. Well, the border security compromise package on Capitol Hill aimed at averting another government shutdown is running into problems with one conservative source telling uh, uh, news sources that the bill is leaking oil right now and President Trump um, not saying that he'll support it. Well, the text of the bill was expected to be available late Wednesday, but one source close to the process said lawmakers are struggling to finish it. The difficulties come as the conservative lawmakers on the House Freedom Caucus, who want more funding for the wall, said Wednesday that they're pushing for a one-week continuing resolution to fund the government, giving lawmakers more time to work out a deal with more wall funding. The conference report is projected to be thousands of pages long and was negotiated behind closed doors. House Freedom Caucus Caucus Chairman Mark Meadows said in a statement, we believe that members should uh, should be given enough time to read it before voting on it so that they can decide whether or not a better deal can be negotiated. Well, congressional negotiators announced on Monday that they'd reached an agreement in principle on border security funding that includes more than $1.3 billion for physical barriers along the U.S.-Mexico border. The White House initially requested $5.7 billion for that wall. Well, lawmakers have until 11.59 p.m. on Friday to get the agreement through both houses of Congress and signed by the president before several cabinet-level departments shut down and hundreds of uh, thousands of federal workers are once again furloughed in what would be the second partial government shutdown this year. When asked Wednesday if they had an agreement that the president would approve, Senator um, Richard Shelby, a Republican out of Alabama, the chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee, told reporters, we think so, we hope so. But today, the president remained noncommittal about signing. Of course, he hasn't actually seen the finished document either. Uh, we haven't gotten it yet. He told reporters at the White House we'll be getting it and we'll be looking for landmines because um, you could have that. Well, now the administration is uh, dangling the possibility that the president could declare a national emergency and divert money from the federal budget for wall construction. But that move would almost certainly be challenged in both Congress and in the courts. A highly placed administration official says... Um, that there has been no decision to sign the compromise legislation and that the president, White House officials and Department of Homeland Security officials will first need the opportunity to go through the thousand plus pages, the entire bill with a fine tooth comb. That, of course, will take time. The possibility of declaring a national emergency is still on the table. The official said, though, no decision has yet been made on that front either. So lots of things, um, lots of things pending. 
Mark Thiessen points out that there is a way for the president to get uh, funding for his wall without uh, declaring an emergency or a shutdown. He says, we just had the longest government shutdown in history over nothing. Democrats have agreed to fund $1.375 billion for 55 miles of physical barrier along the border, which is only a little more than what Trump would have uh, gotten under a continuing resolution that funded the government at current levels and far less than the $5.7 billion he demanded to build 230 miles of barrier that experts and the Department of Homeland Security say they need to secure the border. But Trump can still get the rest of the money without a government shutdown or declaring a national emergency. Hmm. Shutting down the government again isn't an option. Democrats are not afraid of another shutdown. Uh, They know if Trump rejects the deal and closes the government, he would get the blame. And in a few weeks time, uh, we would end right up right uh, where we are now with a bad deal. Uh, They have zero incentive to give him more money for a border wall. Declaring a national emergency would also be a mistake. The president could face a rebellion within his own party, and rightly so. An emergency declaration is intended for actual emergencies, although Congress declares emergencies all the time for things that are not emergencies. Neither should do it. I'm just pointing out the inconsistency. Um, If Trump uh, declares an emergency to circumvent Congress and build the wall, then a left-wing president could use the precedent one day to declare climate change a national emergency and implement the Green New Deal. Besides, the courts would likely enjoin his emergency declaration, tying up wall money for months, if not years. To win, the president needs to shift the the debate to a place where he has real leverage, using the threat of a sequester rather than a shutdown to force the Democrats to give him his border barrier. In 10 months' time, if Congress fails to act, then an automatic sequester will kick in that would reduce federal spending in 2020 to levels that Congress and President Barack Obama set in the Budget Control Act of 2011. Congress agreed to lift those spending caps for two years in 2018, increasing both defense and non-defense discretionary spending above sequester levels. Uh, by $165 billion and $131 billion, respectively. But that deal runs out at the end of the year. If Congress does not lift the caps by December, then automatic $55 billion across-the-board cuts to domestic discretionary spending will take place, while defense spending will be cut by $71 billion. Well, that looming deadline gives the president leverage he needs to get his wall. Democrats may not fear another shutdown, but will they really sacrifice $55 billion for domestic priorities next year just to deny the president a measly $5.7 billion for a physical barrier? Unlikely, if anything, Democrats want to use their House majority to demand significant increases in domestic spending. Denying the president his wall in December would lead to severe cuts, and Democrats would hardly have grounds on which to complain since the president would simply be following the terms of a budget deal that a Democratic-controlled Senate passed and Obama signed into law. Of course, the defense cuts were um, intended as a deterrence uh, to conservatives who know that they uh, would potentially uh, it would rather be disastrous for U.S. national security. But Trump may not care. He wants his wall and may be willing to swallow temporary defense cuts to inflict sufficient pain on the Democrats to get it. This is the kind of game playing back and forth that they do in Washington. Well, the president can't win a shutdown fight today, but he can win a sequester fight at the end of the year. He should take the deal on the table today, resist the temptation to invoke a national emergency, and then get the rest of his wall money in December when he finally has the upper hand. Now, let's see whether or not um, the administration takes uh, Mr. Thiessen's suggestion and applies it. It would certainly delay the funding, but would at some point mean it would be available. One of the co-authors of the Green New Deal is slamming um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, for announcing he's bringing the resolution to a vote. 
Now, last week, Senator Ed Markey and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez introduced a sprawling blueprint for an environmental and economic overhaul that has gotten the support of numerous Democrats, including most of the candidates who've announced 2020 presidential runs. However, after McConnell told the press that he would bring the Green New Deal to a vote, Markey took to Twitter to slam the decision. Don't let Mitch McConnell fool you. This is nothing but an attempt to sabotage the movement we are building. Now, calling for a vote, how would that be sabotage unless it exposes those who would like to play under the uh, radar supporting it or otherwise not supporting it? He wants to silence your voice so Republicans don't have to to explain why they are climate change deniers. McConnell wants this to be an end. This is just the beginning, Markey tweeted. This isn't a new Republican trick. By rushing a vote on the Green New Deal resolution, Republicans want to avoid a true national debate and kill our efforts to organize. Now, it's a resolution, so the debate could certainly follow one way or the other. We're having the first national conversation on climate change in a decade. We can't let Republicans sabotage it. So an up or down vote would somehow uh, people staking their claim either in favor of or opposed to it would end debate. I'm not seeing that, but I think we do get what his concern is. That led to widespread mockery of uh, Markey on social media. Many also praised Cocaine Mitch, a reference to the bizarre nickname former Senate primary rival Don Blankenship. Blankenship, rather, gave him in relation to a reported drug bust tied to his father-in-law's company for forcing Senate Democrats to be on the record in support for the progressive resolution. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, I don't see why or how that would uh, necessarily end the debate, but McConnell is serious about bringing it up for a vote. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Looking forward to a conversation with Steve Van Horn, president and founder of ITEM, International Training and Equipping Ministries. He'll be joining me in the next segment. Portions of today's program are brought to you by Zero Res. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, my friend, my guest has not arrived, so we're going to continue to press forward, and Clark is trying to find out if there's some sort of a mix-up. Uh, we were expecting him in studio, but maybe he's uh, going to be talking with us by phone. Anyway, we're working on our conversation with Steve Van Horn with Item Ministries. We'll let you know as soon as we have more information and whether or not he'll be joining us. Well, if you write a report based upon the facts that uh, that you have, then you don't have anything that would suggest there was collusion by the Trump campaign in Russia. That's a quote from Senator Richard Burr um, in a statement he made recently. And it appears that is exactly what the Senate Intelligence Committee will do. Now, Burr added on Tuesday, there is no factual evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Now, we're talking about a... Um, a, a Senate investigation. We're not talking about the Mueller investigation, and he has been mum throughout. So what he has and what he knows may be uh, quite different. So after two years of an investigation that was instigated by Hillary Clinton's opposition research, the Senate has concluded, as President Donald Trump has steadfastly insisted the entire time, and as House uh, the House concluded last year, there was no con- collusion. Now, meanwhile, the mainstream media has ignored newly released FBI emails obtained via the Freedom of Information Act that reveal former FBI Director James Comey sought to work out a, a quid pro quo deal with Barack Obama's State Department in exchange for going easy on Hillary Clinton, with with her private email server. Now, back in October of 2016, it was first reported that the allegations of a quid pro quo deal with former Representative Jason Chaffetz, a Republican out of Utah, called at the time an unflashing red light 
of potential criminality. He further explained in return for altering the classification, the possibility of additional slots for the FBI admissions overseas was discussed. It's now clear that individuals within the FBI, including former FBI agent Peter Strzok and former FBI lawyer Lisa Page, were involved in discussing a quid pro quo arrangement, though there is no indication it was ever implemented. On top of this comes a revelation from Tuesday that the Federal Elections Commission has refused to investigate allegations of Clinton's campaign money laundering scheme. The Federalist Margot Cleveland She explains, and I quote, the complaint charged that during the 2016 presidential election, Democrats illegally funneled approximately $84 million through the Hillary Victory Fund to the Democratic National Committee, which then illegally coordinated with the Hillary Clinton campaign. Nothing to see here. Move along, says the FEC. Well, once again, with the um, uh, steady smoke emanating from the DNC and the Clinton campaign, which is now long defunct, it's almost uh, laughable the links to which. Um, those reporting on all of this goes to ignore and outright to deny that there's any scandal here while at the same time fixating on uh, the the Trump-Russia collusion conspiracy that is yet to produce actual evidence, at least that we have been able to see or that members of of Congress have been able to uncover. Now, are there other things out there? I don't know. I don't know what Mueller has. I don't know what he's going to say. It's now being reported he's not going to issue a report. But even those who make those claims have no idea if that's the case or not. So the truth is, aside from what uh, the House and now Senate committees have said about all of this, we don't really uh, no, much more than that. Now, I did note that no matter when and how special counsel Robert Mueller's uh, Russia probe ends, House Democrats are planning to aggressively ramp up their own Trump-related investigations that will include a network of committees, high-profile public hearings likely to last well into the 2020 election year. It's unclear at this point when the special counsel's investigation into Russian meddling and potential collusion with the Trump campaign associates will be complete, though several officials have said the probe is nearing its end. Now, is that an informed speculation or is that uh, just speculation? The Mueller report will not mark the end of Russia's the Russia investigation. However, House Democrats have ramped up their own effort to investigate the president on matters related to Russia, his personal finances, his relationship and communications with foreign officials and much, much more. The House Financial Services Committee, led by Representative Maxine Waters, is the latest panel to join in on the investigation. Axios reported on Wednesday that the committee is going to coordinate with the House Intelligence Committee on money laundering inquiries, while the House Foreign Relations Committee is also involved. The details emerged after House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff, a Democrat out of California, already announced a sweeping new probe into the president's foreign business dealings and Russia's uh, election meddling. Committee Democrats alleged last year that the president's financial records with the Deutsche Bank and Russia may reveal a form of compromise that needs to be exposed. Hmm. Well, Schiff has also maintained that there had to be some reason that the German banking giant, which has what he called a history of laundering Russian money, was willing to work with the Trump organization. It couldn't just be a straight uh, arrangement. It had to somehow have linked Russia into the uh, into the thing. He speculates. Well, the same committee has also floated a potential subpoena for notes or testimony from the interpreter in meetings between Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin, a move. Uh, that would dramatically escalate the, uh, the Democrats' investigations into the Trump administration. And should uh, Senator Schiff choose a, to subpoena the interpreter, it would likely trigger a major confrontation between the executive and legislative branches concerning discussions with foreign leaders that would go far beyond this 
president and this Congress. Reports last month suggested that Trump took possession of the notes from the interpreter after his summit with Putin in Hamburg in 2017 and instructed the individual not to discuss what had been taken place in that meeting with Putin with any other administration officials. But the president's decision to ask the interpreter not to share details of the meeting with foreign leaders with other members of the administration could have been a response to prior leaks of private conversations with Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull and then Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto in 2017. While Schiff posed the idea of subpoenaing rather the interpreter in 2018, but again last month suggested they could use subpoena power to obtain the notes and the testimony. Well, the House Foreign Affairs Committee also has directed resources from their former subcommittee on terrorism and nonproliferation to one focused on investigations and oversight. Chairman Elliot Engel uh, out of New York said that it made sense to have a panel like this when there are so many questionable activities of this administration vis-a-vis foreign policy. Well, Engel also pointed to Trump's summit with Putin in Helsinki, Finland in 2018. It's been many months since Helsinki, and we still don't know what Putin and Trump talked about, Engel said, adding that a new panel could also look at the business interests of the president and how his financial dealings with certain countries in the Middle East and Russia have affected what he's done in foreign policy. And it goes on. Meanwhile, sources say that the House Judiciary Committee has staffed up with former Obama chief ethics counsel Norm Eisen, helping Chairman Jared Nadler uh, conduct a um, a panel oversight of Mueller's Russia investigation and the Justice Department. The Judiciary Committee also would lead the charge on any potential impeachment proceedings. And the House Oversight Committee, while not leading a full investigation, had invited former Trump attorney Michael Cohen to testify before the panel. He accepted but then postponed the public hearing, citing alleged threats made by Trump and his legal team. Today, he said he was recovering from some sort of surgical procedure, so I'm not sure which uh, story he's uh, going with. But Cohen has also invited uh, um, was invited rather by Schiff to testify before the House Intelligence Committee, but his hearing is yet to be scheduled. Well, on the other side of the Capitol, the Senate Intelligence Committee has subpoenaed Cohen for a deposition before their panel. Uh, that same committee, chaired by Senator Richard Burr, a Republican out of North Carolina, rather, and ranking member Mark Warner, has uh, been probing whether the Trump campaign colluded with Russia during the 2016 presidential election. But this week, NBC News reported that the committee has found no evidence of collusion. And while the timeline of Mueller's uh, investigation remains to be seen, Trump's former attorney, John Dowd, ripped the entire probe as a terrible waste of time on Wednesday in an interview with ABC News. I will be shocked if anything regarding the president is made public other than we're done, Dowd said. I know exactly what he has. I know exactly what every witness said, what every document said. I know exactly what he said. And I know what the uh, conclusion is, Dowd said, again, blasting the probe as one of the greatest frauds this country has ever seen. I'm just shocked by Bob Mueller that he didn't call it uh, that way and say, I'm being used. I would have done that, Dowd added. Well, so if you want to know what's going to be happening in Washington over the next several months, this is pretty much going to occupy much of the time. I mean, they can, they can chew gum and walk, but there isn't a particularly strong record of members of Congress on either side of the aisle accomplishing a great deal. And with these kinds of investigations, I would have to argue it's not likely we'll see a whole lot done for the American people in the process. But who knows? Maybe they can work a yo-yo, chew gum and walk. We'll see. 45 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back 49 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, today the president met with Colombia's president, Ivan Duke, at the White House. All options are available and they discuss what's happening in Venezuela and what the two countries uh, think should happen next. President Trump and the first lady greeted Colombian president, uh, the Colombian president and his wife at the White House on Wednesday, kicking off a visit that gives both leaders an opportunity to confront the crisis in Venezuela and the alarming rate of cocaine production. Well, the presidents uh, were... uh, said Venezuela, where protesters are urging socialist President Nicolas Maduro to step down, will be the main topic of the day. The U.S. has recognized opposition leader Juan uh, Guaido as uh, it waits for Mr. Maduro to cede power, asked if Mr. Trump will consider using military uh, might. He said that uh, we'll look at all options, but certainly would not talk about it in this forum. Um, uh, Mr. Trump noted that the U.S. military uh, fight over the globe, uh, but that Venezuela is a big problem in its own hemisphere, uh, indicating that that was not something being considered at this point. Well, one of the concerns is that Moscow is exploiting the oil-rich nation and their economic collapse with a military presence in the Caribbean. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin began this year with a move that further complicates the chaos in Venezuela and could pose a significant regional security threat when he decided to permanently station nuclear-capable supersonic bombers at the Venezuelan air base. Now, most experts believe that new Russian military presence there, probably two bombers and possibly a naval presence, does not pose a significant security threat to the United States, nor will it lead to a situation like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Of greater concern are Russian efforts to exploit the collapse of Venezuela's economy and political system to seize control of its oil industry and turn the country into a Russian client state. Now, China could be engaged in a similar effort to Russian uh, two 160 Blackjack strategic bombers landed at Caracas a Boulevard International Airport on December 10th as part of a joint training exercise. And Russian officials uh, announced in late December that Putin had decided to deploy the bombers on a permanent basis on the Venezuelan island of La Orchilla, about 90 miles north of Caracas. Uh, it is uh, nuclear, or rather it's unclear, Nuclear might be applicable here. It's unclear whether uh, Putin will try to establish air and naval bases on the island like it has uh, in Syria, which would be hugely expensive for Russia, which is cash strapped due to the global drop in oil prices. Venezuela's um, laws also bar foreign military bases on the country's territory. But under the current leadership, I'm not sure that would be a sufficient deterrent. Uh, temporary deployments reportedly are possible under the uh, under the law. Well, Russia probably is putting its new military presence on a Venezuelan island to protect it from the runaway uh, crime and violence plaguing the mainland. The announcement of the deployment of Russian bombers in Venezuela reflects closer relations between the two countries over the last few years due to the collapse of the Venezuelan economy. And Venezuela today is a humanitarian disaster due to gross mismanagement and corruption by the socialist governments of President Nicolas Maduro and the late Hugo Chavez. The economy is in free fall with one million percent inflation in 2018. A breakdown in law and order, shortages in medicines, food and power have led millions to flee the country. One of the things the president of the United States and the Colombian president were discussing was how to get humanitarian aid to the people as Maduro is preventing that from happening. Venezuela, with the largest known oil reserves on Earth, should have huge oil revenues. Instead, oil production is uh, the lowest in 50 years and oil revenues are being used to pay for uh, loans to Russia and China. Well, China has lent the Venezuelan government uh, more than $50 billion since 2007. Much of uh, 
uh, much of which must be paid back in oil experts after a $19 billion oil for cash grace period expired in April of last year. China agreed to loan Venezuela an additional $5 billion in September of 2018. Well, this kind of large loan to a nation so deeply in debt is consistent with China's debt trap loans to other developing countries, which Beijing has used to extract huge concessions such as control of foreign ports, minerals and energy sources. China's latest loan led some Venezuelans to accuse Maduro of selling out the country and its oil sector to China. Well, China has not yet leveraged its huge loans to Venezuela to seize control of the country's assets. However, Russia, which has loaned Venezuela far less, approximately $17 billion since 2006, they have used this debt to gain control of significant parts of the country's oil industry, other assets, and to forge a defense alliance that's turning the country into a Russian client state. Now, Russia has exploited its loans to Venezuela to acquire a significant share of at least five oil fields, 30 years um, output for two natural gas fields as well. Venezuela also has given Russia 49.9% control of Sitgo, its wholly um, owned oil company, which operates gas stations, three Gulf Coast refineries, and oil pipelines in the United States. In addition, Russian advisors are working to steer Venezuela out of bankruptcy. Now, these efforts include the creation of a new digital currency, the Petro, to help the country evade U.S. trade sanctions. And Russia also invested over $1 billion for mining in Venezuela, mostly gold, which Venezuela plans to use as hard currency to avoid trading oil in U.S. dollars. The Trump administration recently responded to this effort with sanctions targeting Venezuela's gold exports. Well, the new Russian military presence in the country reflects Moscow's bid to leverage the country's catastrophic economic um, downturn to expand the two nations' alliance against a common foe, the United States. And although Russia's air and naval presence on the um, La Orchila is likely to be small, a long-term Russian military presence there would help establish Russia's global reach and send a message to the United States and to the world about Russian military capabilities. And while Russia's likely small military presence probably won't pose a significant security threat to the United States, Russian support of Maduro uh, will sustain its ability to destabilize the region. And that, of course, would be the goal, at least from Russia's perspective. Now, the Trump administration, therefore, is going to insist this arrangement be halted before American sanctions are lifted. Of more concern are the implications for the Venezuelan people and global energy markets of Russia and China exploiting Venezuela's collapsed economy to seize control of the country's huge oil and gas reserves. And over the short term to medium term, Russian and Chinese exploitation of Venezuela's economy crisis uh, and support for Maduro's regime means the humanitarian crisis, repression, extreme corruption in the country will continue, at least for the foreseeable future. So you had Hugo Chavez, you have Nicolas Maduro, and then you have the United States and other European countries recognizing someone else altogether as a legitimate, um, uh, a legitimate leader in that country. Um, we'll just see how things escalate in the days ahead. It certainly does not look encouraging. An ex-counterintelligence agent who defected to Iran in 2013 helped the Islamic Republic in targeting her former fellow agents and exposing a Defense Department program considered one of the crown jewels of U.S. intelligence, according to an explosive indictment unsealed on Wednesday in Washington, D.C., is still being uh, sought. An arrest warrant is now out for Monica Elfridi Witte, 
The 39-year-old former agent named in the grand jury indictment, the Justice Department says the Iranian government supplied her with housing and computer equipment so she could disclose U.S. classified information and conduct research on personal uh, personnel rather that she had known and worked with during her time in the American intelligence community. Now, how this slipped through the rigorous process of vetting individuals is a mystery, but it certainly does not inspire confidence. An arrest warrant now out for her. Uh, the alleged actions of the former agent in assisting a hostile nation are a betrayal of the nation's security, our military, and the American people. That's a quote from Special Agent Terry Phillips of the Air Force Office of Special Investigation. While violations like this are extremely rare, her actions are alleged, as alleged here, are an affront to all who have served our great nation and served alongside her. Witt, who's from Texas, entered duty with the U.S. Air Force in 1997, worked as an Air Force intelligence specialist and special agent of the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. She separated from the military in 2008 and um, ended work as a Defense Department contractor in 2010. Iranian Revolutionary Guard members arrive um, to somehow influence, and it's not clear that happened while she was working for the U.S. or it predated uh, that arrangement. But during her time working with the U.S. government, the Justice Department says she was granted high-level security clearances, was deployed overseas to conduct classified counterintelligence missions. But the indictment alleges that in February of 2012, she traveled to Iran to attend a conference sponsored by the regime-linked Revolutionary Guard Corps, focusing on topics such as the condemnation of American moral standards, and anti-U.S. propaganda. She then, investigators say, got in contact with a dual U.S.-Iranian citizen and brokered her future long-term stay in the Islamic Republic. Her whereabouts as of um, this week are not yet clear. We're going to take a break here for news and traffic at the top of the hour. If uh, Mr. Van Horn uh, arrives, we certainly will uh, break in and have our conversation with him. He is the founder and president of ITEM, International Training and Equipping Ministries. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back six minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Oregon Senate voted 17 to 11 on Tuesday to make Oregon the first state in the nation to adopt statewide rent control and make it harder for landlords to evict tenants without a reason. Uh, Senator Shamia Fagan, a Democrat out of Portland who recently unseated an incumbent in a race dominated by housing, opened the floor debate on a store with a story rather. Uh, she often tells on the campaign trail. She was 15, showed up at a large Victorian-style house in East Portland to visit her mother, who was struggling with addiction issues. It turned out her mother lived beneath the large house, not inside. Instead of walking up the steps, she dropped to uh, all fours and crawled into the porch, rather under the porch, and she invited us into her house, she told the Senate uh, colleagues. Um, again, I fully realize elections have consequences, but Republican colleagues were willing to be involved, and yet um, we weren't invited. The Democrats have made it clear the coalition supporting the bill is fragile. They fear any changes could cause the legislation to fall apart. Um, she argued from the floor. Senate, or rather Oregon, in the Senate being the first state to establish, as a consequence of this debate, of a statewide um, rent control. Now, Senator um, Fred Gerard, 
blamed Democrats for the state's affordable housing crisis. He says they caused the shortage in housing stock by blocking the expansion of urban growth boundaries and caused the cost of labor to spike by supporting higher minimum wage. Well, that's been an argument posed for many, many years in the state of Oregon, but the Republican voices are not heard as clearly as they have been in the past. Other Republicans called out uh, Democrats for railroading them in their efforts to swiftly pass the controversial policy. Democrats have blocked any amendments or changes to the bill. And quite frankly, with their numbers, they don't have to. Well, Fagan told her fellow lawmakers the rent control measure was personal to her, but also about making it easier for our neighbors who are working hard and paying the uh, uh, playing by the rules, uh, paying their rent to stay in their homes. She noted that Oregon's high rate of homeless children is an issue to consider as well. Well, Democrats have made it clear this bill is a priority, and with a majority in both chambers, its sponsors are moving it at a break, uh, breakneck speed through the legislature. Well, under Senate Bill 608, landlords, uh, landlords rather across the state could raise rent no more than 7% per year, plus the annual change in the Consumer Price Index. The bill carves out an exemption for rental properties that are less than 15 years old. The measure would also prevent a landlord's ability to evict tenants without a reason after they had lived uh, in the building for a year. Now, how you define a reason that's acceptable is not uh, altogether clear, but Senate uh, Republicans decried the measure. Senator uh, Tim Nope a Republican who represents the Bend area, which is booming, warned that the measure will have a chilling effect on investors and developers. He said he's already spoken to investors who said that they are going to get out of the Oregon market. Those rental homes, when sold, are not going to stay in the rental pool. And the problem, Nope said, is a lack of supply. This bill does nothing to address the supply issue. I think you all know that. So the real question is, when will this body truly address supply? Well, it wasn't today. Uh, And this uh, one-of-a-kind, first-in-the-nation statewide rent control bill at least passed the Oregon Senate 1711 on Tuesday to make Oregon the first state in the nation to adopt statewide rent control and make it harder for landlords to evict a tenant without a reason. And again, that's not um, clearly defined at this point. Meanwhile, the City Club, which is a longstanding civic organization here in the city of Portland, is calling for electing commissioners by geographic district, among other things. They say that uh, the government in Portland needs to be rethought. Uh, The uh, City Club of Portland released their report. They recommended sweeping changes here in Portland um, in the form of government we have here. And although not yet adopting uh, adopted rather by the uh, organization, it calls for a complete overhaul of Portland's unique form of government, where the mayor and commissioners each propose legislation and oversee individual bureaus. Among other things, report recommends increasing the number of commissioners from four to eight and electing them by district, centralizing administrative authority under the mayor, who would only vote to break ties, and hiring a uh, processional city manager to uh, uh, oversee all of the bureaus. The report concluded uh, that these changes are needed to overcome four faults in the current system. The first, Portland's current form of city government fails to provide equitable representation by nearly every metric, including income, geography, gender, race, and ethnicity. Number two, the current allocation of responsibility to the mayor and the city council appears to result in poor bureaucratic performance. 
The third uh, problem they cite is Portland has long since outgrown the size of its current city council and would be better served across many different arenas by increasing the number of members. And finally, changing to a form of uh, preferential voting for city council members is urgently needed to deliver more equitable representation. The report is expected to kick off a public um, discussion over Portland's system and whether a ballot measure should be proposed to change it. Although the city club has previously recommended changes in Portland's form of government, this is the first one to propose expanding the number of council seats and electing the commissioners by district. Well, more Portland uh, Portland voters support having council members elected by geographic uh, districts than ever before, according to a poll released by the Portland Business Alliance on Thursday. And the um, Research poll, DHM Research, found that 70% of likely voters supported changing council elections from citywide to district. That is a 16-point increase uh, since the uh, poll was taken in 2016 when 54% of voters supported that change. Again, from 54 to 70% today. A forum on the report will be held um, uh, at the Rolls Alberta Theater. In fact, it may have already taken place, but uh, to discuss all of this, the City Club membership vote on the report um, runs from the 12th of February to the 24th of uh, this month as well. We'll see what those recommendations finally are, but perhaps even more interestingly, whether or not they'll be taken seriously and a ballot measure will follow. Well, Syracuse, New York bookstore, uh, bookstore owner John Speed urges the Batavia, New York City Council to declare the city a sanctuary for the unborn. The bookstore owner who closed his shop to protest the New York late term abortion bill urged his city council at a public meeting to opt out of the law to protect unborn babies. Please lead the way in upstate New York and make Batavia a sanctuary city for the unborn. That's a quote from John Speed, owner of the Book Scout in Syracuse, a former pastor known for his pro-life activism. He cited Romans 13:4. told members of the uh, a council, it's their responsibility to use their authority to support what is good while punishing what is evil. Babies are murdered in Batavia, New York, every day that Planned Parenthood is open, he says. Every day, abortifacients are being sold over the counter in Walmart. Babies are murdered under your jurisdiction. He said the fact that the killing of the unborn is legal is irrelevant, pointing to Nazi Germany. Everything that Hitler did in Germany was legal by German law, he said. Well, Speed used explicit language to make clear what state laws across this, the nation allow. New York's new law passed with applause by the state assembly on the 22nd of last month, effectively allows abortion during any stage of pregnancy. And what is the best way to kill a baby, he asked? Use an abortifacient or saline abortion where the baby is burned alive in its mother's womb. Or is it a surgical abortion in the second trimester when the baby is dismembered and then reassembled in a dish? Perhaps it's to deliver the baby in the third trimester and then stick a pair of scissors into his or her neck. That's what we're talking about here, he added, which um, uh, which is the best way to go about it and at what stage? Well, the new law allows for abortion after 24 weeks of pregnancy. If the abortion is necessary, that's in quotes, to protect the patient's life or health. However, the 1973 Doe versus Bolton Supreme Court ruling created a broad health exception, stating physicians may consider all factors, physical, emotional, psychological, familial, and the woman's age relevant to the well-being of the patient. Well, Speed uh, closed his store for a day in mourning for the New York uh, law. 
He posted a sign on the store saying, close today. This is a day of mourning in New York State. We will not collect sales taxes today for a tyrannical government that murders babies. We will resume regular business tomorrow, collecting sales tax under duress and abortion now. Fifteen minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, tomorrow is February 14th. The pressure is on. The manufactured holiday of Valentine's Day is upon us. And there are folks among us who insist that they be recognized during this season. Others who, eh, it's nice to get a card, but they don't care that much. But there's an FTC scam they're telling us about that's, um, well, it's bringing in more people than ever before. Is it love? Well, the answer is maybe not. Well, the FTC announced this week that romance-related scams, they've surged recently. They're generating more losses than any other consumer fraud. The number of these romance scams reported to the agency jumped from 8,500 back in 2015 to more than 21,000 last year. And the amount lost by victims has quadrupled over that period, reaching $143 million last year. Well, the median reported loss for victims is about $2,600, about seven times more than other fraud tracked by the FTC. Now, I don't know about you, but $2,600 is a lot to me. Well, romance scams vary by um, degrees, but criminals typically find their victims online through a dating site or social media. So you don't necessarily have to be on a dating site. You can just be on social media. Scammers create a phony profile, often building a believable persona with the help of a photo of someone else and direct communication. They woo the victim, building affection and trust until they see an opportunity to ask for money. I'm still waiting for Clark. It's not a romance thing, but I'm just waiting for him to ask for money. You know, we've been building this friendship now. Any day now, he's going to ask for $2,600. I can just see it. Uh, Romance scams vary, but criminals typically find their victims online through a dating site or social media. Um, The reasons for the requests can run the gamut, uh, but money to pay for a medical emergency. How are you feeling, Clark? You all right? You don't have any doctor's bills? Um, Or travel costs for a long-awaited visit. They're common. You traveling anytime soon? Need any cash? No, okay, you're good. Some victims report sending money repeatedly for um, one false crisis after the other, according to the FTC. Well, the money is often wired or given as gift cards, which allows the criminal quick and anonymous access to cash that cannot easily be tracked. Well, anyone can be a victim, and experts warn. Uh, but the FTC uh, data found reporting romance scams happen most often with those between the ages of 40 and 69. Uh, those 70 and older paid out the most to scammers with medium losses per person of about $10,000. So there are fewer of them, but they paid out a lot more. Well, it can happen, they say, to anyone. Whatever you think, whatever you believe, you could be a victim. And it doesn't always have to center around romance. It might just be an online friendship in which you see yourself in a position to help someone who's in need. Maybe they take advantage of the fact that they've learned you're a person of faith, you're generous of spirit, and so on. So it can happen to you, whatever you think, whatever you believe. You could be a victim. That's what Senior Managing Director of the Cyber Risk Practice of Kroll, a risk management company, says of all of us. The criminals are masters of manipulating human emotion, and they're targeting victims uh, when their defenses are down or their emotions are running high. I mean, they create a scenario in which, you know, it's irresistible. And while romance-related scams, they've been um, around for ages, they become more common and successful as people spend more time socializing and finding dates online, or at least friendship. 
It's become so common that the AARP recently launched an educational campaign that urges consumers to recognize the warning signs of a fraudster. And that can be somewhat difficult, but these include professing love too quickly, reluctance to meet in person, requests for money and photos that look more professional than an ordinary snapshot. Now, some of the other warning signs include your uh, suitor pressing you to leave the dating website or other forum to communicate via email or instant messaging. So sort of isolating you from the broader community. Romantic scams have an emotional and financial toll, but criminals may seek more, sometimes asking for personal information that can facilitate identity theft. Now, this may be done under the guise they need a birth date, a social security number, a bank information, to help complete a visa application, travel information, or other lies. If you're a victim, don't be too embarrassed to report the crime, they say. And if you believe a friend or family member may have uh, fallen for a fraudster, you need to speak up. You're not the first or the last to fall for this. Brill says it's happening a lot. Be willing to admit to yourself that it happened and then report it to law enforcement. Reports should be made to the FBI's Internet Complaint uh, Center. And it's just... um, ic3.gov or call your local FBI office. You can also file a complaint online at that same website. Reporting will help law enforcement track down criminals, sometimes help victims move on with their lives and prevent uh, the similar scams from being carried out on other innocent victims. You have to remember the scammers are out there and they're very good at what they do. Uh, Brill says he urges people to think critically about what's being told to them and ask of them. The person responsible for your cybersecurity comes down to you. And I sometimes chuckle at some of the emails that I receive, some of the appeals and, uh, and so on. But I have to stop and think that sometimes they can be taken very seriously, and particularly because people tend to be lonely and they're looking for the kind of affirmation that these kinds of fraudsters bring in the form of online communication. In fact, I was uh, reading a report just recently that said loneliness is a hazard of old age. Um, that can be met with simple phone call maybe once a week. It makes a big difference. Now, some of us might enjoy solitude, but when you have no choice and you're stuck with too much of it, it can easily turn into loneliness, which is no pleasure at all. There are more than a million older people uh, whose lives, I would say millions, whose lives are blighted by loneliness. And um, uh, when certain occasions approach, Valentine's Day might be one. We just celebrated Christmas a short time ago. It exacerbates that sense of loneliness and isolation. There's nothing more miserable than sleeping, waking, eating, doing more or less everything alone, especially for anyone single, separated or widowed or in poor health, while the rest of the country seems to be playing happy families or at least trying to. And of course, um, Uh, Social media does not help. Now, most of us are much too busy to help some old person whose existence we're not even aware of. uh, But they're suggesting that we become more aware of the neighbors around us. And a simple outreach of a phone call, for example, uh, can mean an awful lot. Now, Valentine's Day is approaching. It means a lot to some people. It means very little to others. But it is a reminder that most of the people around us, we assume, are connecting with people who love them. There's an expression or an exchange of affection. And if you're not part of that, it can be very, um, very depressing, not in the clinical sense, but it can be very depressing. So I know for Dan Rice and I, we've made the commitment that as long as my mother lives with he and I, uh, the focus of Valentine's Day is going to be her. Every year I decorate her apartment. I buy dozens of balloons and they fly until uh, sometimes um, early summer. Uh, big red balloons, uh, they're flowers and candy. My father always brought my mother 
a heart-shaped box of chocolates and a dozen roses. She has those. There are cards and all this stuff that I would like to receive on Valentine's Day, but we lavish our affection on her. I make a point every day. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter how tired I am, how well or unwell I might feel, whether or not there are commitments later in the evening, whether or not I get late because of commitments I've already uh, had. I go downstairs and I spend some time with my mom. Sometimes it's really difficult because I'm so tired. For one thing, I have to go downstairs to to do it and to engage in conversation and re, re um, rehearse the day to find out how she's doing, what she had for dinner, you know, who she talked to and just have that conversation. But I'm telling you, it means everything. Last night I um, got home later than usual. I looked down, there's a door that, uh, that has glass that you can look down into her apartment. She had the, she was in her bedroom. She had her little light on and I knew that light was there so that I could come down the stairs and, and be able to see where I was going because she was waiting for me. I walked through that door and the, the excitement, I thought I'm so not worthy of the level of excitement she just expressed. The excitement when I walked through that door, just to engage in a few minutes of conversation. I haven't had dinner. I haven't gone through my mail. I, I haven't done anything. I just go down and spend some time with her. And what a difference that makes. Now, Valentine's Day is a great time to start that, to be aware of the people around us, to express a little affection and attention. I would encourage you to do that. Maybe that box of chocolates you receive is passed on to somebody else who will have nothing. Just a thought. All right, coming up, we're going to talk with Matt Tallman. He is uh, going to talk with us about the upcoming short-term mission connection that's coming up Friday and Saturday, February 22nd and 23rd at East Ridge Church in Clackamas. All the important details up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, many of you know that Mission Connection is not a singular event. Mission Connection that took place just this uh, last month is the first in a series of connection events that help equip the body of Christ here in the metro area and really all across the country. Uh, to do missions effectively. Well, short-term mission connection is coming up next weekend. The theme this year, plan ahead. And we're going to talk about why that's important. I know many of you have been on short-term mission trips and they can be handled and uh, executed very well. There can be follow-up that helps to cement some of the uh, tremendous lessons to be learned. And then there are those that are mishandled, perhaps, um, where you come and go and, well, the trip didn't make that much of an impression because, well, that wasn't encouraged. Well, here to talk with us about a short-term mission connection 2019 plan ahead is my friend Matt Tallman. He serves with Open Arms International. He wears many hats there, including leading short-term mission teams for Open Arms Village in Kenya. In fact, I had the opportunity along with my husband uh, to travel to uh, with Open Arms on a short-term mission trip some years ago. Matt, it's always a pleasure to have you with us. Welcome. Hi, Georgine. Thank you so much. We're uh, excited to be here and uh, looking forward to uh, short-term Mission Connection next weekend. Well, let's talk about why this is important, because I think most people think you get your calendar out, you put something uh, on the calendar, you go, you come back. What is there to uh, to think more deeply about? Let's talk about why it's important uh, when you're involved in short-term mission to consider a series of really important questions about why you're going, the impact you're going to have, and what happens when you come home. Yes, uh, Georgina, I think it's um, important for a variety of reasons. Uh, I like to use uh, uh, a nuclear metaphor. I think, um, you know, um, short-term missions can provide uh, the critical mass needed um, that uh, 
that a single missionary alone can't provide uh, for a variety of different outreach opportunities uh, involved in short-term missions. Uh, it can also provide the critical encouragement necessary for the long-term work that missionaries do when a short-term team comes that is adequately prepared uh, and ready to go and serve. Um, so um, that's why I think it's it's important that you uh, that you prepare yourself properly, that you have uh, the right resources uh, you know, to be able to to have uh, a really good short-term missions experience. Um, I also think it has the added benefit of being really transformational uh, mm-hmm. for the person going as well. Um, you know, I think back, um, for example, I think of uh, Rachel Daffy Gallagher. She and her husband David started Open Arms 16 years ago, but the reason um, the reason she started Open Arms primarily started with a short-term mission experience she had right out of college. Uh, she was a nursing student. And she decided to go on a short-term missions trip to Calcutta, India, uh, to serve with somebody named Mother Teresa. And that changed her life. It changed her whole trajectory. And um, that's really one of the, I think, most important aspects that can really change the life of a person going on a short-term missions trip. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, let me ask yeah. you who this um, this mission connection is for, the short-term mission. Is it for those who are responsible for putting short-term mission opportunities together, for those who are uh, uh, called to go, or um, the churches that contribute to short-term missions? To whom is this uh, Mission Connection Conference best suited? Um, I would say all of the above. Um, uh, it's certainly designed um, to help uh, churches uh, that don't have any kind of short-term missions uh, opportunities but would like to start some, um, it's it's helped to uh, designed to help create a short-term missions program for churches. It's also designed to help uh, help uh, people leading teams uh, to help um, uh, people trying to organize short-term missions teams. How to how to help implement the planning, how, how to help provide uh, the resources, even the, the software to help administratively uh, to uh, have a, to execute a really quality short-term mission experience for a team. Um, but also for anybody interested in going on a short-term missions trip, how can you better prepare yourself? Um, there are a variety of different workshops and tracks that can really fit in nicely with with all of those needs for for us for a church for an individual or a team leader. We're talking about short-term mission connection 2019 plan ahead. That's coming up uh, February 22nd and 23rd. That's not this, but the following weekend at each East Ridge Church in Clackamas. Uh, Jamie Saint is going to be a keynote speaker, and that's exciting. He's the uh, executive director of ITech. He's the grandson of Christian martyr Nate Saint. So it's it's going to be a great opportunity to hear from him. But as you pointed out, there are tremendous opportunities for uh, workshops as well as uh, the plenary speaker to help walk people through uh, whether they're in leadership and putting a a trip together or they're planning on uh, engaging in short-term mission work uh, to be better equipped uh, preparing for being there and then coming back home. Uh, Absolutely. And uh, and Georgine, um, 
you know, one thing I, I wanted to add today that because um, we really wanted, uh, we already have nearly 100 people signed up for the event, but we hope to have at least 100 more come. And um, in order to facilitate that, I'd, uh, I, I uh, just for your listeners only, I'd like to offer an added incentive, a, a special uh, $20 discount for the conference, the, uh, the, the least expensive option we have available uh, for, for $39 if they sign up and register uh, and type in MCNW special, they can get that offer. And, uh, but we, uh, we want to provide every incentive we can uh, to encourage uh, people to take advantage of these uh, this training. Well, on behalf of KPDQ listeners, we really appreciate that. Now, there are three tracks for Mission Connection 2019, or rather short-term Mission Connection. Uh, there's a track for team leaders, for administration, and special topics. You've got a, a series of great uh, speakers on uh, making mission trips better, leading your, uh, for uh, for change, roles and responsibilities of a leader, uh, working smarter, not hardy t- harder, rather to cover uh, the bases, um, engaging your church in missions, and much, much more. All of those details can be found on the website, and I would encourage people to go to Mission Connection. Uh, dot um, is it com? I can yeah dot com Mission Connection dot com for uh, information about short term. Mission Connection. Now, I mentioned that um, Jamie Saint is going to be the keynote speaker. He's executive director of iTech and grandson, as many of us uh, might recall, of Christian martyr Nate Saint. Uh, what will he bring to the conference in terms of focusing our attention on better short-term mission experience? Well, uh, Jamie, in his uh, in his ministry, has a uh, tremendous focus on on training. Uh, indigenous leaders throughout the world and uh, has quite a bit of short-term missions experience as well, sending teams to help provide uh, training for indigenous leaders. And um, so I think his experience uh, uh, with both in, um, you know, in training indigenous leaders and in short-term missions experience, he's really, uh, you know, I think the ideal fit for somebody that can Speak from experience um, to help provide, um, you know, the training and firsthand experience um, that will really help uh, leaders and uh, short-term team members as well. Well, we would like to invite you to uh, participate in and attend Short-Term Mission Connection 2019. Plan Ahead is the theme. That's coming up on Friday, February the 22nd, and Saturday the 23rd. Uh, doors will open um, at 7 o'clock, or rather the uh, the evening will begin at 7 o'clock um, on Friday night. Uh, the doors will open at 6, and on Saturday all day from 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and this is going to be at East Ridge Church in Clackamas. To register and to learn more, you can go to Mission Connection. Remember that's spelled with an X, missionconnection.com. And if you use the special code that was given a moment ago, you can enjoy a discount for KPDQ listeners. Well, I'm excited that the conference is back and that uh, KPDQ listeners and folks from all around our community will have an opportunity to have a better short-term mission experience, churches sending better, uh, serving those who go serving uh, more effectively, and so on. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, Matt. Well, thank you, Georgine, and I hope you'll, you and your husband, Dan, will 
consider taking a short-term missions trip with me and my wife, Cheryl, to Kenya soon as well. We would love that. We would absolutely love it. Thank you, Matt. Again, uh, Matt Tallman uh, serves with Open Arms International. He wears many hats there and is also uh, working with Short-Term Mission Connection 2019. The theme, Plan Ahead. MissionConnection.com for more information. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there is a survivor of the North Korean prison camp who was incarcerated because of her faith. And she says, am I a Christian? Yes, I love Jesus, but I deny it. And this explains a little bit of the dilemma that men and women of faith face in places like North Korea. Well, North Korea, we learned, took her name, stripped her clothes, shaved her hair, But there was one thing they couldn't take from Prisoner 42, and that was her faith in Jesus. She survived what seemed like a death sentence after fleeing to China during a famine to feed her family. Watchdog organization Open Doors USA, which, by the way, was at Mission Connection this last month, estimates she was one of 250,000 imprisoned North Koreans, 50,000 of whom are political prisoners jailed for their Christian faith. 50,000. She spent one year in solitary confinement and was released after two years of hard labor. Well, North Korea has been the number one persecutor of Christians on the group's annual list for the last 18 years. Open Doors was hopeful that diplomatic efforts, including the 2018 Winter Olympics and the Trump-Kim summit, would mean, well, easing pressure and violence against Christians, but that has not been the case thus far. Christ followers are still seen as a threat to the uh, Kim family's ideology, their faith, and quickly erased from society either by death, detention centers, re-education camps, or maximum security hard labor prison camps known as Quan Liso. In an interview with Open Doors, 42 recounted just how each morning um, started when they would call for her. She would crawl out of a door flap, typically used for dogs or cats, Keep her head bowed low because she was not allowed to make eye contact with the guards. Then for an hour, they would ask her the same question. Why are you in China? Who did you meet? Did you go to church? Did you have a Bible? Did you meet any South Koreans? Are you a Christian? She said she had to lie to stay alive. Am I a Christian? Yes, I love Jesus, but I deny it. If I admit that I was helped by, Christ- by Chinese Christians, I will be killed, either quickly or slowly, she said. They will murder me in this North Korean prison. Every day I'm beaten and kicked. It hurts the most when they hit my eyes. My eyes ring for hours, sometimes days. She said in her year in solitary confinement, she was trapped in a cold cell and never saw sunlight or a single soul. I spent one year in prison, and for one year my skin didn't touch a single ray of sunlight, she says. So she prayed and sang a song she wrote in her head, but never out loud. It's been a year now. I don't know how long I will survive in this place, she wrote. One day they will call me and I won't move. I will have died here in a North Korean prison. They will dispose of my body and the first new prisoner that comes in will be prisoner 42. They will wear my clothes. But one day she appeared in in court rather where... She officially divorced her husband against her will, but for the sake of their children, he and their children. They found her not guilty of being a Christian. Instead, she was sentenced to four years at a re-education camp. In between working 12 hours a day, she became sick and had to stay in the barracks. But it was in there that she saw a woman praying in tongues under a blanket. 
inside this North Korean prison, we wound up forming a secret church. When we met and felt safe enough, we prayed the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, she said. She was actually much braver than I was. She spoke to others about Christ as well. But one day a car came and took her away. As for Prisoner 42, she was released after two years. She told Open Doors the first thing she plans to do is to find her husband and children. We haven't seen each other in years, she said, but God has watched over me here in this North Korean prison, and I pray and I believe that he also watches over my family every second of every minute of every hour of every day. She added, I need to tell them about this loving God. You can read her full story at Open Doors website, where hers and other stories are often featured. Meanwhile, a new book is being released on Friday, and it takes a look at the lives of the 21 Christian men the world saw being beheaded on a Libyan beach in 2015, and how their deaths at the hands of the Islamic State only strengthened the faith of believers in their hometown. The world was rightfully appalled when the brutal terrorist group released footage showing the 21 men, all but one being migrants from Egypt, being led to the shore of a Libyan beach near Sirte, dressed in orange jumpsuits. The video came at the height of the Islamic State's reign of terror that wreaked havoc in places like Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Egypt, and Libya, and showcased how brutal and atrocious the jihadi death cult could be. Iconic photographs and screenshots taken from that Islamic State propaganda video are all over the Internet, showing the 21 men on their knees with their backs toward the Mediterranean Sea. Behind each of the 21 men was an Islamic State militant standing with a knife that would be used to cut off their heads, thus sending a message to the world. Well, four years later, the martyrdom of these 21 men is not forgotten in Upper Egypt, as all 21 have been canonized as martyr saints by the Coptic Church. You get the feeling in Upper Egypt that they are not in an Islamic country at all. It is a Christian country, popular German novelist Martin Moschbach told the Christian Post in a recent phone interview. It's mixed in a society there with Muslims, but the Christians in Upper Egypt are the majority. Mosbach was inspired by a picture he saw on the cover of a German Catholic magazine to tell the story of the 21 Coptic men. The picture on the magazine featured the head of one of the slain cops killed in the Libyan beach, who was born in 1991 in Upper Egypt. This picture caught my eye in 2016, he says, an image of the face of one migrant worker beheaded by ISIS on the beach in Libya. Having authored 11 novels, the German writer was looking to do something different before he began working on his 12th. Mosbach uh, decided to visit El Aur, or something very like that, the town where the 13 of the 21 Coptic martyrs came from. He spoke with families of the men killed and heard stories about how the martyrs are being credited with modern-day miracles. The new book, The 21, The Journey into the Land of Coptic Martyrs, is an account of his journey in that area, in that town. It is a very dirty village. It is a very poor and primitive village, he explains, adding that the Coptic villages there are very strong and knowledgeable in their faith. And although Christians in Upper Egypt are always under the threat of persecution, as Egypt has been under Islamic rule for 1,400 years, the faith of the Coptic Church as found by St. Mark has been unwavering and continues to remain strong today. These communities and congregations are very educated and know the faith, he explained. In the spirituality of the Copts, miracles are a very important thing. In this particular town, everybody is talking about miracles. According to Moshback, numerous miracle stories have built, around, built up around the 21 martyrs of El Aur. 
Some stories include the martyrs being credited with saving children who fall out of windows, curing sick people, even healing a woman of infertility. Miracles didn't save the 12 from decapitation, but did prove that their sacrifices had made them Christ-like and therefore accepted as such. One miracle involved the son of one of the martyrs, the son who said to have fallen out uh, onto the street from a third floor uh, window, causing him to break his arm in multiple places. When the son regained consciousness, he claimed that his new dead father had caught him. Days later, the son's x-rays reportedly uh, did not show any fractures. According to Moshback, the term miracle is used by the Coptic community as the next explanation for any phenomenon they see. Everything that has happened is according to the will of God, Moshback told uh, uh, the Christian Post. The miracles are also now seen at, with the martyrs, uh, which the martyrs um, uh, helped be responsible for, I suppose, is what he's saying. And although the Coptic community has faced much persecution throughout its history that continues today, Moshback explains that cops do not consider themselves to be victims and do not seek revenge. He added that the villagers in El Aur are proud of their martyrs for standing strong and dying for their faith. The mothers who lost their sons at the hands of the Islamic State know that their sons are now crowned kings in heaven, Mosbach said. You can go to every family in the region. They will tell you the same thing, that they are ready for martyrdom, and they wait for the martyrdom that may come to them for the sake of Christ. Well, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Rita Dunaway. She's the author of Restoring America's Soul, Advancing Timeless conservative principles in a wayward culture. That's coming up tomorrow on the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing from afar and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.